Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is a podcast about making work work. You'll learn about leadership, career growth, and how to navigate those weird work challenges. I run a HR consulting business called Boldside, where I help leaders build epic team cultures. If you lead a team or run a business and you think I can help, let's connect on LinkedIn. My name is Shelley Johnson. It's time to get to work. Today on the show, we are answering your listener questions and I'm joined by Shane Hatton. Today, we're focusing on dealing with a micromanager or what do you do if you are the micromanager? We're going to be answering questions about moving overseas for your career and how do you rebuild work relationships after trust has been broken? Let's do it. Shane Hatton, welcome back. He's back. I always wonder what I'm going to say is like the opening line. I, yeah, I'm not happy with his back. Maybe I want to do that again, but it's what fine. Would you, Let's just do, leave do you want to do a take two? What? Nah, I feel like that's, a, that's not the strongest you... start, but it's a start nonetheless. <laughs> well, you know what? If you feel like that wasn't a strong start, I have a strong question to start us off with. So, you know, we could just have this question as the strong start because far out, it's like, it's pretty spicy and I'm into it. Nick says... I got feedback that I'm a micromanager. What are the signs of micromanagement and what can I do about it? Thank you, Nick, for asking this. Micromanagement is really common. (laughs) I don't know where I was going with that thought, but let's just go there. Micromanagement is a common problem that a lot of us deal with. I know you've got some really good insights on this, Shane. And so I'm going to share mine first because I don't want to go after you and have them look (laughs) not as good. (laughs) So there's strategy in my approach. What do you do if you are a micromanager or what are the signs of micromanagement? I've got a couple of thoughts. I think micromanagement is less of a behavioral trait and more of a cycle. So usually what I see when we have micromanagement is somewhere along the way, trust got broken. So maybe we had a manager had an expectation of an employee and they wanted them to do something. It might've been communicated. It may have been implied, but not communicated. The employee doesn't deliver on that expectation. And then what happens is that manager feels like they need to step in. So that cycle then starts where they need to start to control. So they go into kind of control mode. They take over um, ownership for stuff that should sit with that particular employee. And then what happens is that employee's confidence goes down. So then the mistakes and errors increase. So you can see the vicious cycle. The mistakes and errors increase because of the controlling behavior and because you feel like someone's watching over your shoulder all the time. It's like, you know, if someone's watching you type on your computer, if you've ever had someone watch you write (laughs) um, an email and then all of a sudden you start making a bazillion typos because you're like, stop watching me. Like, this is so awkward. Now I'm like, I don't know how to type anymore (laughs) because so it's that thing of like, when you feel like you're being monitored, your confidence drops, you start making errors which reinforces that manager's need to micromanage. And so the cycle continues. And this is what happens, I think, in the micromanagement space. And we need to find out a way of breaking the cycle. And as a leader, 
that's on you. You need to, to work out how do I move from command and control to coach and guide? And that's a difficult shift to make because it requires a lot of discipline. It requires you to set very clear expectations and then get out of the way of your team member, like not step in and step on people's toes. And because that's really difficult, I'm going to throw to you, Shane. <laughs> can you tell us <laughs> how people can stop micromanaging? <laughs> oh, gosh, what a big question. And this is coming from a recovering micromanager. <laughs> I, I got really bad at it for a period of time. And I still feel like I'm getting, I, I have to, I feel like I have to intentionally get, get out of this Did you get bad at micromanagement? I got bad. I got can bad. Can I just clarify though? Did you get bad at it or good at it? <laughs> Well, maybe I got really good at micromanaging. <laughs> I was a master at micromanagement, unfortunately. Because here's, here's the thing, right? This is what I told myself. And, and if you're listening, let, let me test some of these beliefs. Um, I told myself this work is just too important to let go of completely. Like it's just too important. I need to, I need to be in the detail of this. I told myself, well, I just need people to keep me updated with what they're working on. Um, I told myself, well, I just want to run my eyes over their work before it goes out so that I, you know, just make sure there's no, no mistakes. And I told myself, I just want them to, you know, CC me on emails just so I can stay on top of everything. And what I didn't realize that in the process of having those beliefs, what I told my team was, I don't trust you to do the work. I don't trust that you're doing enough work. I don't trust the quality of your work. I don't trust you to stay on top of your work. I didn't realize that the things that I was showing up as that were very well-intentioned were not coming across that way to my team. And so I think the tension around micromanagement is this tension of how do I feel like I'm in control, which is ultimately what we want to feel like when we're in leadership, without becoming controlling. And there's a very fine line between those two kind of worlds, which is how do I feel like I'm in control, but without, you know, coming across as controlling with my team, which is, which is tough to do. Um, so there's a few things that come to mind for me when it comes to, to micromanagement. Um, the first one is as a leader, you have to learn to feel like you're across everything, but not in everything. And there's a, there's a big difference between those two is especially the more senior you get in leadership, you cannot be in the detail of everything. Um, and for a lot of people, they feel more in control when they're in the details and you have to let go of that desire to be in the detail of everything. That's why you have really clever people working for you. So, I mean, from your perspective, Shell, like what are the things that help you feel like you're across something that give you the confidence that you need to, you know, that you have everything that you need to know without getting sucked into the detail? Like what are the big things that come to mind for you? I really like using objectives and key results as yeah. a leader. And I've used that consistently for years with people that I've managed. And that has really helped me. And I've done that on a quarterly basis. So at the beginning of each quarter, the whole team will collectively design all of their objectives and key results. So each person might have three that they're focusing on. And they're like, this is the big objective. Here's the key things that I'm going after. And as a manager, I know, yep, they, those things all align and then things that sit outside of that, that come up, those urgent things, we then look at those and reevaluate them against what we all agreed was our strategic kind of focus areas for that particular quarter. So we're very clear on this is what we're focusing on and this isn't. Now, the other thing that I have, and this is getting super like kind of tactical, but like the way that we structure weekly meetings and one-on-ones is all based around those things. So 
checking in on objectives and key results in week in our weekly meetings and one-on-ones and then looking at okay well as urgent things arise we're gonna have to make some changes as we go but if for me what I see with a lot of leaders that I work with is they haven't really got into the rhythm of that and it's quite a discipline like to get really clear on this quarter these are our core focus areas I think the reason we struggle with it is because we have to say no to stuff like we have to go, you know what, we're not doing those things. They, we don't have time for that. And I think that's an area that we, a lot of leaders find difficult because maybe we underestimate what we can achieve sometimes or we overestimate the amount of time we have available. Mm. So that's been a really big part because I have some like control freak tendencies. Yeah. And that's, that's the shift that we talk about where you move from being output focused to outcome focused. So output looks at the amount of work or the type of work that gets done. The outcome looks at what the goals were, the KPIs were, the objectives were, and were they able to deliver on that? And so if you're going to be a micromanager, you're going to get pulled down into outputs. And so you're going to look at, hey, when did my team show up? When did they leave? When did they take a lunch break? How did they do the work? And that is the worst place to be in as a leader. No one wants you managing their outputs. Whereas an outcome-based manager is looking at, did they achieve the objectives? Did they arrive at the correct answer? Um, and so once you've shifted from output to outcomes, it allows you to move from um, preference to performance. So if, if you think about this, what's the outcome? Okay, so let's say the outcome is five. That's what you need to get to. The answer is five. So you go, well, how do you get there? Well, one plus four. How else? Three plus two, you know, six minus one, 21 divided by five, five times one. All of these expressions are just as valid to get to the answer of five. And so if you're going to focus on performance, performance asks the question, did they deliver on the outcome? Whereas preference asks, did they do it my way? And you could look at your team members and go, well, I want you to do it my way. And it's like, my way is, is four plus one. And, and your team are going, well, I don't understand why I can't just do 25 divided by five. And you're like, well, cause I want you to do it my way. And that's, that's where kind of micromanaging creeps in. I reckon the magic in work is not in the, in the what it's in the how the magic is in the learning of the, how did you arrive there? What was the expression? What did you do to, to make your way there? Um, and so for people, I think as leaders, especially we've got to spend less time worrying about how people get work done and recognize that our job is to define what, which is what's the outcome we need to achieve. Why, why do they need to achieve that? What is it? How does that fit within the bigger picture of what we're working towards and when do they need to deliver on that outcome? So less how more, what, why, and when. More what, when, when, that is awesome. And you're you're bang on around, you know, giving people the freedom to get to that outcome in a way that makes most sense for them. I love it. So there's a follow-up question and this one was from an anonymous person. What do you do if you work for a micromanager? So we've kind of touched on this idea of what do you do if you are the micromanager and we've all been there, we're all, we're both recovering control freaks. (laughs) (laughs) So what do we do if you work for a micromanager? And I think, yeah, what's your thoughts? (laughs) (laughs) Um, As someone who has both been a micromanager and worked for a micromanager, I know them well. (laughs) And so I I guess the questions (laughs) become a lot easier. And uh, it's really challenging, especially if that person's in a more senior leadership role, uh, because we need to acknowledge the power dynamic that comes into play with being able to deliver that feedback Mm. to your manager. So I would, I would preface this with what's the psychological safety that exists 
within your relationship to that leader. And we've talked about this, go back and listen. I can't remember what the podcast episode was, but we talk about this idea of moving from questions to observations, to statements, to challenges. So if you, if you don't have the psychological safety to challenge, start with questions and observations. Uh, the question that I would be asking in this of your manager right now is, is what do you need from me that you're not getting right now? So if they're getting down into the detail of something, then it's because they're not getting something that they feel that they need. So for example, they may just not feel like they're, you know, they might be showing up to an executive team meeting and they're getting, they're getting grilled on questions that they don't know the answers to. And as a result of that, it pushes them back to you to go, actually, I need to get more in the detail with this. And so once you kind of can identify what they're missing, it allows you to empower up with information rather than them stepping down to get it. So you might say, hey, you know, right now you're working on four projects and I just don't know the state of the progress of where they're at. And I feel really out of the loop. I feel really uninformed so that when I'm in my exec meeting, I can't speak to these areas. So you might go, hey, what I would love to do is rather than CCing you on every single email so that you have, you know, we clutter your inbox with more what I'm going to do is I'm going to send you a bi-weekly update or a weekly update and it's going to have the four projects and it's going to have three dot points beneath those that give you enough information for you to feel confident to show up in that exec, exec meeting to be able to speak to it without needing to get down in the detail of everything. Would that be helpful for you? And so maybe it is just purely empowering up with information so that your leader feels more comfortable with that. Um, yeah, I would be saying, what, what are you missing that you're not getting that is causing you to step down into the detail? Yeah, that's really good. Uh- practice of how do you manage up and really focus on what they care about because often it comes down to what is it I love that question what are you not getting or what are you missing right now that speaks to the thing that they really care about and then if you can come up with a solution and you're almost able to take some of the control back of going okay cool now I'm going to come up with a solution that makes your life easier and by doing so helps everyone and it reduces that level of micromanagement yeah One thing that I think is really um, a good example of this and something that's worthwhile remembering as an employee is that your manager has the ultimate responsibility for your work. And so it's it's really tempting to, to beat a manager up because they want to get down into the detail. But if they're getting down into the detail, there's a reason why they're not feeling confident in a particular area or they're, they're missing something that they feel like they need, which is why it's important to ask that question. But you do have to acknowledge that they're also carrying the responsibility of those decisions. So a good example of this is, you know, we've seen a lot happening with Optus recently in the news in Australia, where the CEO has recently resigned over the outages that have taken place. And I remember reading through the comments of that and going, people, people saying, why, why did they resign? Like, why, why, why is the CEO stepping down over somebody else's mistake? And what most people don't realize is that, unfortunately, the reason why the CEO is in that, is in that role is because they carry ultimate responsibility for all the decisions that get made by every single one of their employees. I'm sure the CEO wasn't the person that caused the, the outage yet they were carrying the responsibility of that decision. So hopefully just by knowing that every layer in the business, they're carrying the, the weight and the responsibility of your work and your outputs allows you to have a bit more empathy as to why maybe they're feeling stressed or concerned that they feel the need to step down into your role. And if you can empower up and elevate them and, and help them feel confident, um, feel like they're across everything, it's going to make them feel more confident to show up in that role and probably less likely to step down in the detail. I'm really glad you said that thing about empathy because when we're in these kind of tricky work relationships where we feel like maybe the relationship isn't working as well as it could, we often forget to have empathy for the other person. We're thinking about, oh, this really sucks or this is really tricky or this is really painful the way this relationship is right now. 
but having empathy for the other person's role and the complexity that that role holds is really key to solving the problem. And I think about this in a uh, design process. If we think about user experience and the user experience process of having empathy for the user, and that's a really core part of product design, we can apply this to our how we design the relationships that we have at work. And if we have empathy for people and the things that maybe we don't see that are happening for them or, or are challenging for them, then we can go, okay, cool. Well, how might that be impacting how they're showing up? How might I adjust what I'm doing to account for some of the stress that they may be carrying or things that they care about? And it flows really nicely into this next question, Shane, from Jess. And she asks, how do you rebuild work relationships after trust has been broken? Slowly. <laughs> Slowly. <laughs> That's the answer. Well, there's no quick fixes for trust, really. Like, is there any, have you ever come across a hack? Like, has someone ever said trust to you? Trust hacks. Yeah, trust hacks. Well, that's the thing. It's <laughs> like there, there are no hacks for trust. Like trust takes time and concerted effort to build. Yeah. Uh, the the hard part about it is is that they what people want in in response to this question is give me the hacks give me the the tips and the techniques to to rebuild trust quickly, and unfortunately when trust has been broken it's it's really hard to rebuild quickly. Um, we may have mentioned this on a previous podcast before, but I know Rowan Dredge was actually the guy that introduced us um, all those kind of years ago, mm. and he's a good friend of mine, and he talks a lot about trust. He's actually the first person I ever interviewed on my podcast, and we talked about trust. And he talks about this really great idea, which is that when trust is broken, trust almost needs to be restored within the same context in which it was broken. And I use this example all the time in my workshops that I run now, where I talk about, like, if you want to position yourself as someone who is an empowering leader, then you go to a team meeting and you haven't had your morning coffee, you feel angry, you feel frustrated, someone suggests an idea and you cut their legs out on the idea. You shut them down, the whole team's like, whoa, that was intense, everyone feels awkward, and then you leave. What is the typical pathway that most people follow? Well, the leader recognises and goes, oh, that was probably not the right thing to do, shouldn't have done that. So if it was you, Shell, and I had this experience with you and I you know, shut you down in the meeting, what I would do is I'd find you and I'd go, hey, Shell, can I just pull you aside for a quick sec? Hey, look, I'm really sorry. Like last meeting, I was just in a really bad headspace and I shut you down. I didn't mean to do that. And and you would probably be the forgiving person that you are. You go, hey, look, I didn't like it, but um, I appreciate you coming and saying sorry. Thank you so much. Are we good? Yeah, we're good. All right, let's move on. Now, most people would believe, oh, great, trust has been restored, trust has been fixed. And and maybe with you, Shell, if it's a minor thing like that, maybe it has. Maybe you're like, oh, it was, a, it was an out-of-character incident and I can look past an out-of-character incident as long as there was acknowledgement and a change of behaviour moving forward. However, there were nine other people in that meeting that heard me do that and watched me do that. And if I don't go back in that same context and apologise in that context, nine people almost have this erosion of my trust, even though you and I have restored that relationship. So I would say to people, like, you have to go back to the meeting. You still have the one-on-one conversation, definitely still have it, but you also have to go back into the context. So next time I get together with a team meeting, what I would do is I would say, hey, everyone, I, I just want to acknowledge for a moment in our last meeting, I said something to Shell when she brought up an idea and it, and it really shut her down. Now I've gone to her and I've apologized privately, but I also want to make sure that I want to bring it to the group here and let you know that's not what I expect of myself nor of anyone else on this team. And I want to publicly apologize as well. 
And in doing so, you restore a collective trust, not just an individual trust, which I think is a huge, often overlooked piece of the, the trust equation. And takes so much humility to do that. Like I haven't, yeah. I've seen a couple of instances of leaders do that, but it, where they've publicly in a team meeting said sorry for a particular behaviour and I can see that moment in my mind so clearly and it was such a profound like, oh, wow, that's that's awesome. And I know in Michael Bungay-Stenia's latest book, How to Work with Almost Anyone, he talks about this idea of relationships being repairable and a hallmark of a healthy relationship is that you can repair them. And if we think about a relationship, if you have one stuff up, like we're people, we're going to stuff things up. We're going to break trust. Like that's what we do as people. Like we're not perfect. But if you have a healthy relationship, it is repairable. And in fact, it gets stronger as a result of the damage that gets properly repaired. I think though that we often struggle with that. What does repairing a relationship at work look like? Like what does that actually look like and how do I do it? So there's that beautiful example of that you just shared I think we also have these little micro moments where we can repair relationships and we maybe overlook them. Mm. So there might be little small things like, oh, hey, I cut you off in that meeting. I'm really sorry. Like little micro moments that you can take to repair relationships instead of waiting for the big thing to kind of blow up. And it's like the cumulative impact of all these little small things over a number of months. Looking for what are some of those little micro moments that I didn't really feel like I showed up as my best self and can I have a conversation to to repair that in the early stages rather than overlooking it. And I kind of find for me, I know when there's those times because I get that sense of unease about maybe how I handled something. So what is that for you? Like are there those moments where you feel like maybe you didn't show up as your best self and can you go and have one of those repair conversations instead of I guess you talk about this. I've heard you talk about this, Shane, where instead of we waiting for that high stakes, crucial conversation, we're having those kind of smaller discussions along the way. Yeah, really well said. I think you touched on um, MBS's book on how to work with almost anybody. Um, and in there, he, he actually suggests asking that question before you get to that potential rift or, or broken relationship. So it's actually sitting down with, sitting down with your team and going, hey, let's just be really honest with one another. I'm going to get this wrong. <laughs> you know, it would almost be the first conversation in team leadership roles going, hey, you know what? I'm probably going to get this wrong. Actually, I'm definitely going to get this wrong somehow. And you as a team member, you're probably going definitely going to get it wrong as well. So can we have a conversation about how we repair that when we broke it? And what what do we require of one another when we get it wrong? And can we give each other the compassion and the understanding to recognize that we're not going to get it perfect the first time? And actually, we can talk about how we repair broken relationships. Stephen Covey has this great quote, which is that you can't talk your way out of something you behaved your way into. And that thought alone is deeply profound, which is this idea that, you know, by all means, stand up and and use your words to express your, you know, sincere apologies. And at the same time, make sure it's backed up by a consistent Mm. action and behavior. So how many times have we heard celebrities get up and say, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, and then learn nothing from it or change nothing from it, as opposed to people who get up and say, I got that really wrong, and then immediately back it up with changed actions and decisions over time. And that's how you know that people are not just listening, but they're learning. So I would say, yes, apologize, 
apologize within the context where trust was broken and then add to it what you just said before, micro decisions over time that demonstrate you've actually learned from those, from that experience of where trust was broken. Okay. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to be talk about moving overseas for your career and a question about work-life balance. Stick around. If you want to grow in your career, I just wanted to remind you about our book, Sort Your Career Out and Make More Money. Glenn James and I have written this book to help you with any kind of career crisis, but also those things that you want, like getting a promotion, making more money, moving into a leadership role, or if it's time to quit your job. You can find our book wherever you get good books from, or you can listen on the audiobook, Sort Your Career Out and Make More Money. Now let's get back to the show. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Okay. Sarah's asked, I'm not sure if this is something you could cover or maybe get someone on the pod one day, but I'd love to hear you talk about moving overseas for a year to work. Huge topic, I know, but I guess how to find roles and where to look. Now, Shane, I guess I've got you on and right now you're in London. You've just recently moved overseas for your business. So tell us what you've done because I haven't moved overseas for work and I have no idea how how it all works and how you've gone about it. <laughs> oh gosh! Look, How's the I, jet lag. Firstly, well, it's horrible. I, I'm still up at three a.m. every morning, um, and and this this should hopefully give people who are listening some insight into the fact that I would not call myself a seasoned pro at moving overseas. I've been in London now for two months, and uh, three weeks of that was also spent back in Australia working in Australia. So. Um, I wouldn't say I'm a seasoned pro at this, but I'm definitely learning some things very quickly about moving overseas. What have you learned? I mean, moving overseas is interesting because it feels still very fresh for me because I've only been in London for a couple of months. But I guess there's a few things that I would be thinking through if you are considering moving overseas. You definitely have to recognise that there are things that you say yes to and say no to at the same time. So when you say yes to moving overseas, you say yes to the opportunity, the experience for, you know, so many um, great opportunities that could be over there. But you're also saying no to potential opportunities in Australia or wherever you're based. Um, you're saying no to um, potentially that immediate support network that you've established that you've built in Australia uh, to say yes to building new support networks and new opportunities overseas. So there's a trade-off, there's benefits to moving overseas and there's also challenges and, and, and obstacles to moving overseas as well. So definitely consider, like actually make a list of what am I saying yes to by moving overseas and what am I saying no to here in Australia? What are the benefits that I'll gain by moving overseas? And potentially what are some of the things that might 
um, be challenging when I get back. Um, you know, you might take a pay cut moving overseas. Uh, you might have savings in the bank in Australia, feel very comfortable and need to eat into some of those savings when you move overseas as well. So there's pros and cons to, to making that decision. One of the things that I, I read, which I loved, was this idea that you're not starting again from scratch, you're starting again from experience. And so when people consider moving overseas and taking their career overseas, there's this feeling of like you're going back to square one again. And it feels like that in some ways. You feel like you have to earn trust again, you have to earn reputation again, you have to build network again, and it can feel like starting again from scratch. But the reality is you're not really. You're starting again, but you have all the experience that you've gained in your existing roles before you get there. So um, you have to just be prepared with the potential feeling that it, it feels like you're going backwards despite actually going forwards. Um, managing your expectations as well um, with, with what that looks like. How have you gone with the network side? Because I think that's the big thing for people when they move overseas and they're trying to find a job, it, like in this scenario for Sarah, she's probably going to move overseas, I guess, and then have to build those networks to find a job once she kind of hits the ground. What would your advice be for how people can kind of do some of that legwork before they move to build that network? Yeah, that's a really great point. I can't believe I didn't say it earlier, which is it's going to take a lot longer than you think to get everything across the line. So when we were looking at moving overseas, I thought to myself, oh, I'll just decide to go and then, you know, just apply for the visa, should be there in six months. Didn't realise it. It probably took 12 to 18 months just to be able to get the visas relevant to be able to set up and work in another country. And this is going to look very different based on where you're planning to go and live. Um, it's not just as easy as deciding in December and going, you know what, I might start the new year and go work in London or go work in the USA. There's all these visa processes that you need to go through. And so if you take into consideration that probably on an easy visa route, like a skilled worker visa, which probably a lot of people who are listening would explore to go down for a gap year in London or something like that, the visa probably is still going to take six to 12 weeks just to get processed, um, which is still a few months. And then you've got to consider about booking your flights, finding accommodation, looking for work overseas. So you're probably at least looking at six to eight months of prep time before you feel like you're even on the ground in another country working. So I definitely would encourage people, if you're considering moving overseas, start the conversation early, make the decision early so that you can start putting some of the, the, um, the framework and the foundations in before you arrive. So if you're on LinkedIn, start reaching out to recruiters in the other country that you're looking to move to long before you've even gone through the visa application route. Um, start to connect with people and say, hey, I'm looking, gonna, I'm looking to be over there. Look at the local job agency websites. And this obviously depends on the seniority of your career. Um, some entry-level careers will be advertised on job sites, but if you're looking for a more senior leadership role, they're not always just necessarily advertised. So they're probably going to come through recruiters. So how do you build your recruiter network? Start to build relationships with different recruiters. Um, yeah, look, start doing the legwork nice and early because it takes a lot longer than you think. Um, and make sure that you've got, we talked about this a little bit earlier with runway, make sure you've given yourself runway to be able to set up in a new country, both in um, financial runway, potentially if you arrive and you don't have a job straight away. Yeah. Runway in terms of uh, those, yeah, support networks. So you can potentially move to a country where you don't have any, any support network. So who do you know that could you could get introductions to or or people that you can meet so when you arrive you don't feel so isolated and alone? Um, start to build those friendship networks as quickly as you can as well. Yeah, I love that I love that too. And I just imagine the amount of having to put yourself out there. But I can see you would gain heaps from that. That experience of having to put yourself out there, put yourself in kind of 
I guess those situations that unnerve people, especially anyone who feels a little bit introverted, this stuff is awesome in terms of the experience that you gain. So I love that advice, Jane. I love the advice of using that runway and lead time to build your networks, to connect with recruiters and different indi- even different industry groups that might know of job opportunities. So there's a lot that you can do in the lead up. We have one last question to round out today's episode. Kamana's asked, just wondering what kind of job allows me to have work-life balance? Uh, (laughs) Work-life balance. (laughs) It's a short answer. (laughs) (laughs) What's your short answer? Tell me. (laughs) None of them, but you go first. (laughs) None. (laughs) Yeah. I have always struggled with the term work-life balance for years. Like this is not a new thing. It's like my whole career. Now, the reason I don't like it as a term is I think it's set these really unreasonable and unattainable goals for us, like work-life balance. I'm like, wait, what does that even mean? Because I'm at work 40 hours a week if you work full-time or, or then some. So immediately it feels like there is no balance because I spend five days a week at this place with these maniacs that I work <laughs> with. And like, I don't know, like I'm just like, how do you – I, I kind of think it's the wrong measure mm. because when I think about the 40 hours that I spend at work plus the eight hours a night that I have to sleep, I'm like, there doesn't feel like there is a lot. It doesn't feel balanced, does it? Well, there isn't balance. It doesn't make sense. So I'm like, why do we keep trying to aim for this? For me, I kind of rejected that concept of work-life balance and I prefer the term work-life blend. Like, do I have the right blend and mix? And some weeks that'll look like, like, so recently I was, I've been traveling for the last few weeks for work and been in Sydney and, and next week uh, traveling again. And I think for this little three-week period, it's just a lot of work. But then I know that I have my quite a lot of margin after that and I'm going to not work my normal days and I'm going to chill out. <laughs> like kind of I, I think it's the blend and that's what I like. And, and I mean I've got the luxury of having my own business so I get that that's totally not possible for everyone. But I think for each person I'd be saying stop worrying about balance and start trying to find out for you personally what is the right blend that you need when it comes to finding those spaces where you get margin. And I think margin and rest are so important. We Like so, so, so important for your longevity in your career. But yeah, I just take personal offence at the word work-life balance. <laughs> <laughs> I what do too. I, I, I find, because I don't think anything in life has balance. Like I don't know any, any areas of my life that are balanced out. And if they are, they're not balanced for very long. Um, well, I really like that phrase. I, I thought of the idea of like the thing that popped in my head was work-life tension, but I like yours better, I think, which is uh, work, work-life blend. Um, like blend, I'm not sure. Yeah. How much experience do you have with like music? Do you have a background in music and, you know, recording and, you know, <laughs> sound recording just out of curiosity? Um, not, not heaps, but can I tell you a confession? I w- was in a family band. I was, I'm so glad you said that. I was I was fishing there. I definitely knew that. I wanted you to confess <laughs> you that publicly because I feel know. like the world needed to know that. <laughs> but you, here's the thing about being in a family band. I've never personally been in a family band before, um, but you could probably speak with your expertise time. to this. <laughs> so, so part of bringing people together in that is to find blend. 
And you, as an audio producer, you have a mix, right? And so again, let me explain. If you don't have a musical background, there's an, an audio producer or there's a, an AV person or sound producer down the back and they have an audio desk and their job is to ultimately adjust the dials to find appropriate blend or appropriate mix. And at certain times throughout a song, different people take the lead and they're going to push that vocal on the fader up and they're going to bring other people back so that that voice shines through the mix or comes through the blend. But ultimately, if you look at a a great sound producer anyway, they're never just sitting back and watching the whole thing going, I've mixed it once, it's all good to go. They're constantly adjusting the mix to make it blend and to make it work. And I think as the sound producer of your own life, there is this no, there's not this idea where you go, great, all the faders are set, now I just sit back and relax. It's like at, at a certain given moment, something needs to shine through and it might be, gosh, my work right now is taking a lot in the mix and I'm going to push the fader up on that. I'm going to bring the other faders back because that just needs my priority and my attention. And other times you're like, oh my gosh, I've pushed the fader too loud in that. We've got one one thing shining through. I need to find more of a blend. I'm going to push my family back up. I'm going to push my hobbies back up. I'm going to push my other areas back up. And we're just constantly adjusting the mixing desk to find that that work-life blend, which I, again, I really like that phrase and that metaphor. I love that metaphor. And I think about that in terms of music, like music has a level of of dynamics to it, right? So there is this dynamic nature. We want things to also be in harmony. Like we don't need this uniformity in music. Like if everyone was singing the melody, it might sound a bit abrasive. But I think if you think about your career, if you think about your work and you go, what does blend look like for me? How do I keep reassessing? Is the blend healthy? Is the mix healthy? Yeah. Does it feel right? And sometimes I've got it totally wrong and I've been uh, working way too hard and all the reverse is sometimes I feel like I'm like sitting back, maybe being a bit slack and need to up the ante. And, and so I think we need to reassess and I love that continually reassessing. I just think the goalpost or that concept of work-life balance is really unattainable and un, and just unrealistic. And so we need a different goalpost yeah. that we need to go for. Yeah, agreed. And I think, again, people would say, Spoken what's the like job? Spoken like two workaholics. <laughs> well, I know. It's so funny because people would say, what's the, what's the job? And I would go, well, if you want real work-life balance, if you want to call it that, it's starting your own business because you get to dictate your own hours. And I saw this meme the other day. It was like, I quit my nine to five to work 24 seven. And I was like, that's <laughs> so if you're, if you're planning to go, well, if I just start my own business, I'll get my work-life balance. I'm sorry. It's, it doesn't work that way, which again, it's, it's constantly in the pursuit of a mirage. The thing that you're looking for, I just don't think exists, but you can take more intentionality over the decisions you make to bring more life, more into blend or more into certain mixes at certain times. Um, and the tension is always, it's just not a problem to solve. It's a tension to manage. And if you manage that tension well, I think you, I think you'll be okay. So well said. Well, on that note. Off to work 24 <laughs> seven. <laughs> exactly. Oh, well, hey, thank you to all our amazing listeners for submitting your questions through the My Millennial Money Facebook community. If you haven't already, connect with us on LinkedIn. Me, as you know, and Shane Hatton, jump on, message us. Hey, I just appreciate you, Shane, so much. I love your insight and wisdom. It's always like these conversations are so good for my soul. If you enjoyed this episode and if this episode was good for your soul, give us a five-star rating. That helps us to get the podcast out there. So please do it. Jump on, do the thing. Go, go, go. All right. Thanks, Shane. See ya. Always a delight. (laughs) 
We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. We love learning how to do all things well, which is why we have a bunch of different podcasts on a variety of topics. So go and check out My Millennial Investor, My Millennial Money Professional, My Millennial Property, My Millennial Money, My Millennial Daily and Retire Right. Find these wherever you get your podcasts. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.